You look magnificent. You oh, really thank you. What's your secret? What's the... What's the, what's the secret? Tell us what what's it is. Secret? A long life of hard drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I am your host, Jason Dubray, and I'm joined by now six-time guest, Tom Ratzlaff. He holds the record for the most appearances on the show, and it's funny, lately we've been doing a lot, uh, a lot of tribute shows on here, so just had a show where Lee Beckman and I talked about last July, we lost the great uh, film composer Ennio Morricone, and here we are, we're, there will be two separate episodes, one uh, with you and one with another guest, in a similar way, doing a tribute to the great Canadian actor, Christopher Plummer, and this is an interesting mix. I, I, I think these are not necessarily the films, the only stars really in one of the six that we're going to be talking about. The other show will be like a lot of the ones that he was known for as far as awards consideration and and when he in fact won his awards. But this was kind of, most of these movies are kind of in a stage where he was just this reliable character actor that was really well used in some Hollywood movies that in some cases are pretty dark. Like I, I uh, spun through these six movies in about three nights, and uh, and I was like, yeah, these these felt fairly heavy, and I just wasn't sure, Tom, if you were feeling the same thing as well. I mean, probably the lightest of well, I don't know, it's arguable arguable about which is the lightest of the lot here. But there's one that's a little bit whimsical, and then there's another one about mental health. But those seem like actually kind of the the lightest in this bunch. So it's it's a heavy bunch of films, but I don't know. To me, that says something about the plumber wasn't afraid to choose projects that were a little bit darker and a little bit edgier. And I recently just... It seems like the last stretch of podcasts I've done, my show or guesting on Larry Parsons' show, there's been at least one movie that I've really, really not liked, and I've been very vocal about it. I'm really happy to say that this will be a show where I like all these movies, just some more than others, but I'm going to be coming from a more positive place, because I was finding, like, sometimes now, I don't know, maybe when I was younger, I had a stronger stomach for it, but it's not fun kind of just venting about how bad a movie is. You had mentioned you wanted to talk about Christopher Plummer and we kind of cobbled this show together uh, as we often do when we uh, put a show together. So what did and does Christopher Plummer's contribution to film and theater mean to you? He's kind of Mr. Everything. I don't think I've ever seen anything that he's done that I thought he was really stretching himself. He made it always, no matter what the role was, he made it seem really easy, including vicious villains and and uh, <laughs> and that one romantic lead that apparently he didn't like for most of his life, <laughs> The Sound of Music. Yeah. Uh, I did review that recently, yeah. Yeah. And everything in between, weak and, and frail and strong and dangerous and everything in between. And, of course, strange and creepy, such as in Dr. Parnassus. Everything that he does seems very natural, very um, authentic, and that means, I think, he's just damn good at it. We could get into more specifics, like the fact that everything he does is so very precise, and there's never any 
doubt as to how we're supposed to understand what he just said and did. Never any doubt as to how we should feel about it because he doesn't leave any room for the, for that kind of doubt. The only time there's doubt is in, well, it, it's going to come up in, in relation to one of these movies, when the character that he's playing opposite in a scene might have some doubts about him. It's as though he plants those doubts, Plummer does very precisely, and also plants the possibility that the suspicion is uh, unfounded. You know, he's very good at doing more than one thing at a time, which almost no actor can do. And I don't think I've ever asked an actor to do more than one thing at a time, but I know I've asked them to stop trying to do more than one thing at a time because it just no. makes them seem confused. Mm -hmm. Plumber's never confused. He's just always no. right on. I mean, he's classically trained. I do think probably some American moviegoers who only know him from film and maybe don't know about his extensive stage work, but wouldn't be surprised that he's an accomplished Shakespearean actor. Uh, none of the 12 movies that I'm going to be reviewing and tribute to him in involve that aspect of his his career, but his contributions to Stratford and the London stage and, and all the theater that he did. But I, I think there's probably a lot of Americans who think he's British. They don't necessarily <laughs> yeah. know that he's he's Canadian, which is kind of it's kind of cool in a way because he does disappear. He can do a, a, a really convincing dialect in in both shows. There'll be examples of that. It's rare. I think I I catch him acting. If you know what I mean. Yeah, and I I do. He's he's so authentic all the time. Yeah. Like some roles are. are flashier than others and flashy is okay but you do you see the like the actor enjoying it and i think perhaps the stage work gave him that a little bit more of the chance to play up and be a play things a little bit bigger there was the odd film role that that did that so yeah. Possibly his stage work, too, is one of the reasons why he never hesitated to take an interesting character and he didn't have to be the center of attention in a scene. And no. he doesn't steal them and he doesn't have an ego when he's acting. He doesn't appear to. It seems to be, be all about the work, not all about him. I don't want to suggest that that's a characteristic only of stage actors. That's that there are some who are like that and he is most definitely not. No, uh, I, I think he he was well regarded. The interesting thing about him is I, I think he was a pre appreciated more late in his career like he seemed to get better and better and it really was the sound of music was there and he was receiving regular work but that last stretch in from his late 70s up until when he died in his 90s th that was the time where he was just doing amazing work and he was coming in and saving film projects that's uh, a, a movie i'll be talking about in in the other show and i just i think he kind of moved from getting away from captain von trapp which he wasn't crazy about he warmed up to it a little bit later on in his life and joked about it a bit more then he became a really reliable character actor and then he got more and more work in the 90s and throughout the early part of the 21st century and finally somebody caught up to the fact that this this guy should be nominated for academy awards and it eventually started to happen and pretty pretty late in his life he, he worked right up until the end i mean he didn't he didn't really retire some of his early work was excellent too though but of course you can only do so much with the character you have and the role you have and you can only show so much there's one film that we aren't reviewing that part of me still wishes we could have called the silent partner arguably he's the best thing in the film and about the film although it's it's a pretty good story but what is so amazing about his performance is that he is in in that film maybe the most terrifying villain i've ever watched 
watched. I mean, I suspend my disbelief, but I know when I'm watching a movie and when I'm not. It was very difficult watching The Silent Partner and not being terrified of the character the plumber was playing. You know, you've seen him in so, much, so many seen. things that's a real achievement. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have not seen that movie. I uh, plan to find some way to check it out. Elliot Gould stars, yeah. but uh, that's okay. Christopher Plummer is the reason to see the, the movie. It's uh... And it's I, not badly made. It's yeah, a, we've been doing tangents about Elliot Gould. We reviewed Mash together. I I like Gould. Yeah. I think more than you do. But I don't mind him in that in that uh, film. So. so the movies we're reviewing, there'll be a few other themes that come up and other stories to talk about, as there always is. One of the things that happened with this group of six is we have two films by the talented, quirky American director, who was like the one American allowed to be part of the Monty Python troupe, Terry Gilliam, a director. I admire greatly. So we'll have two of his films. We'll bookend the show and then we'll have uh, four other ones in there. So we'll, we'll be looking at the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Then we're going to take a look at an, uh, a Best Picture winning film, A Beautiful Mind. Then we're going to look at a Stephen King adaptation, Dolores Claiborne. Then we're going to look at the one movie that he's starring in where he played Sherlock Holmes, Murder by Decree. Then we're going to look at the, even though it's still set in Sweden, I, I, I hate to kind of label this, but it is sort of the American version of the girl with the dragon tattoo, American director, American star in the film. But did you know, semi-international cast. And then we're getting off with 12 Monkeys. So those will be the six that we look at. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Christopher Plummer before we start reviewing the movies? Good looking guy, he looks like me. <laughs> tribute to Christopher Plummer, but as it happens, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus was the last film role for Heath Ledger, and Terry Gilliam himself, he said he wanted to make a movie that was just going to be fun. He had made a series of dark and complicated films, and he wanted something that would be, you know, shoot it, and it would be great, and it would be a fun experience. It turned out to be a very stressful experience, obviously, because halfway through the shooting, Heath Ledger died, and then they, they had a, a problem because key scenes with his character had to be completed. But because of the nature of, fortunately, they, the way they shot it, they started off with the real world stuff and they completed all of that with Heath Ledger. And then the more out there parts of the story, which revolved around a lot of CGI that was shot in Vancouver, that hadn't been shot yet. And so uh, they came up with a scheme and altered the screenplay a little bit so that there would be three different actors would come in and play versions of Heath Ledger's character after he goes through this uh, 
mirror, which gets into the mind of Dr. Parnassus. The, uh, while he's a supporting character, Christopher Plummer is the title character. He is Dr. Parnassus in, in the movie. But the sequences inside his head, we get uh, Johnny Depp, we get Jude Law and Colin Farrell all doing different versions of the character that Heath Ledger originally created. So it was a heavy shoot and it's a very, very odd, as you would expect from Terry Gilliam film. It's enjoyable, but the stuff I enjoyed the first time I watched it is not what I enjoyed this time. But the basically there's a lot of versus battles in the movies we're talking about with Christopher Plummer's character versus somebody else. In this case, it's Dr. Parnassus versus the devil. And in a stroke of genius, the devil is played by the great Tom Waits. And how could you not love that? And so Dr. Parnassus goes around with his daughter and this kind of old-fashioned theater company in modern-day London and in very strange public places perform their unusual show and they do not have a whole lot of success until they uh, stumble upon this man who's hanging from the bridge. Uh, They save his life uh, and... There's a lot of mystery around him, and that character is played by uh, Heath Ledger. Uh, there's a bit of a dark reading of that now, unfortunately, the fact that he died of an overdose, and then we have a character who was hanging there. But I think a lot of people quite wrongly projected Heath Ledger's death onto playing the Joker and being very method with Joker. And they said, oh, he never recovered from being the Joker, which is complete nonsense because he competently came in and he shot about half of this movie and played the character really well without a single trace of the Joker character. So I, I don't buy for a moment that his his drug overdose or any of that was connected to playing the Joker, nor to playing this character. I think it came from another place there. So there's that sort of sad context in 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 this which i don't think they can help but it was meant to be a bit of a celebration of his career and they were arguing about whether they should finish the film or not they did and i think you know it's a really enjoyable movie where i think i would criticize it and not to do with the acting of the three gentlemen who came in uh johnny depp is wonderful in his little sequence there uh jude law is okay colin farrell is pretty pretty good colin farrell kind of has the the bulk of of the time there but I kind of am no longer impressed with movies that rely that heavily on CGI. And we're going to be talking about an older Terry Gilliam film. And just some of my favorites of his are ones that still have a lot of fun cinematography and art direction and wonderful tricks to them, but don't rely on computers as much as this movie relies on computers. The cast is good and it's an entertaining story. So my, my thumb would be up, but uh, there's just the odd thing here or there that I, I, I would be critical of with the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on it, Tom? Well, I, I see what you mean there. There are a few moments in this film when I'm reminded of, of Gilliam's wonderful cartoon work with Monty Python, but this doesn't match that. I think perhaps if they had not bothered with CGI and gone the old school route, yeah. it might have been better because Gilliam became kind of brilliant at that with the Monty Python troupe. And on the other hand, one of the 
one of the charms of that cartooning work was that it could so humorously at times deal with such dark stuff and did and and it would deliberately turn something dark with a giant foot coming down and squashing some some cartoon character that we've just been enjoying so if that had been lost that mood that attitude that that gilliam brings to things <laughs> oh yeah that's great that's fun oh but wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> I'm reminded of a Lawrence Ferlinghetti poem that ends with, and then it's about how beautiful the world is, but it ends with, and then right in the middle of it comes the smiling mortician. <laughs> or in Dr. Parnassus, it's the smiling devil. Yes. <laughs> but that mood is still there, and I'm I'm glad, and I think that sort of saves it. I mean, I, I agree with your criticism, but on the whole, I think it's a very worthwhile film. And again, why? Because the performances are so delightful and the characters are so quirky and the ideas are so unusual and surprising. There is this uh, this strangeness in the universe, you know, and it is about stories and how important they are and, and how silly they can be sometimes and, and about the weird stuff that goes on in someone's head. In this case, the weirdest stuff is going on in Dr. Parnassus's head, but there's also a, a darkness and a bleakness about, about the characters and their various fates. I know that at the end we find out that Valentina has gotten together with the guy who's nuts about her and they now have a little girl. So that's supposedly happy. But in a way, that was my criticism, that they went that route with the story. Her entire life, she's been a sex object, even when she was a child. Her nickname is Scrumpy, which is short for Scrumptious, which the character who eventually marries her, right? The character who called her that couldn't even understand why he did, because he's he, he's in love with her and, and sees her very differently from everyone else. But even he called her Scrumptious. And there's something obviously very bleak about that, as is true of all of the women I can think of, the female characters I can think of in, in uh, Terry Gilliam's work. She's a strong, independent-minded woman and doesn't necessarily need need a guy to do things for her. So many of the, the female characters in his shows are like that. So that's what saves her. And maybe that's the reason why he chose at the end to, to let her have something nice. You know? he, he, does, he does operate in sentimentality sometimes. Some movies are colder than others. I think we're going to talk about one that's that, that's in some ways a lot colder and darker than this one. Lily Cole, though, I think I forgot how good she is as yeah. Valentina. Part part of the the synopsis I didn't talk about is the, the big conflict between Doctor Parnassus and the Devil, and they've had these bets for years. But one of the bets had to do with that when his daughter turned 16, then she would then be owned by the devil, right? And then they have a, a an extra bet here about trying to win over souls, either going to hell or, I guess, some version of heaven. Dr. Parnassus wins them over or whatever. Whoever can get to five souls first <clears throat> wins this bet, and that will be just kind of like raising the stakes here for this bet for, uh, for so that Valentina doesn't have to go to, to hell and belong to the devil. And th there's a lot to this film, but I think Plumber is very good. There's some obvious scenes, I guess, with uh, has a bit of a, a drinking problem that they keep playing on. And some scenes like that where I, I, it's funny how he, he kind of blends in. And sometimes he, I'm not used to him blending in to a cast. Normally he's the one who's like stealing the scenes away. Not trying to, but he does steal the scenes from people. But Andrew Garfield, I think it's a bit of a character role for him. 
This was before everybody knew him as like the Spider-Man that uh, everybody has now forgotten about because he was the second Spider-Man. But before, you know, uh, Hacksaw Ridge and a few other roles kind of made him more prominent. But he's a very good actor. He brings a ton of energy. He's the, the character you mentioned who is in love with Valentina. Is just not very good at, at showing it. And of course, Ledger is so much more interesting and worldly and has Valentina's attention, as you would expect, because he's about to turn 16 and he looks like the bad boy type of thing. And as we find out more and more about him, we realize he is really an even more despicable character than, than we think he is, you know? Yes. Um, which, uh, which is depicted mostly by Farrell. It, it's depicted, though, I would say and, it's, it's in the background of Ledger's character. You can tell oh, yes. that he is a snake oil salesman from yes. the beginning, but he's able to fool enough people. He doesn't fool everybody. But I, I think it was kind of Ledger's another one where kind of like Plummer, where he steals the movie most of the time. And here he's he's in the mix. You know, it is a true ensemble film. Yeah. And, and so I would actually I'd say I might argue Lily Cole gives the best performance in the movie. But the most fun is Tom Waits scenes as the devil. Like he just shows up and fills up the screen and smokes his cigarette and has his raspy voice and has his conversations with Christopher Plummer and seeing Christopher Plummer and Tom Waits together. I mean, what, like who would think of that? Terry Gilliam, you know, so, Terry Gilliam. so that's Absolutely. worth the price of admission alone. So, I mean, you will yeah. know by this point, if this sounds interesting to you, I know it will be interesting to you. I think the movie didn't get as much attention as maybe they thought it would, but it was those who saw it, I think, maybe saw it because it was Heath Ledger's last role. Maybe they went to see it to see the other actors. I mean, Johnny Depp was one, one of the A-listers as well at that time, so people might go to see. He's not in the film very much. I think he maybe gave them a couple of days, but I, I, I really liked his his little sequence there with this this woman who loves materialistic things and ends up in Dr. Parnassus' brain and is being romanced by... Uh, <laughs> by this Tony Heath Ledger's character as portrayed by Johnny Depp. Yeah. Very effective manner. So, yeah, I feel like I'm sort of talking around it here. I, I guess maybe one of, I feel like this is going to be a, I have two other kind of downer things to talk about, and then maybe you can mention something that's more positive. There's also a small person who's kind of a quasi-Jiminy Cricket to Dr. Parnassus, yeah, yeah. and Percy played by Vern Troyer, who is most known as Mini-Me from the Austin Powers movies. Yeah. Another sad story. I mean, he died from addiction some years after this as well. And one of the other things that I couldn't get out of my head, and this is, unfortunately, this is just how I think, just knowing way too much about this stuff. Andrew Garfield, because I nearly got to see this and I missed it by a week. Andrew Garfield was in a production of a, of a Death of a Salesman in on Broadway, New York, directed by Mike Nichols, may he rest in peace, and starring Philip Seymour Hoffman as Willie Loman. So he worked with Ledger just before he died, and it was a few months later that Philip Seymour Hoffman also died. So Garfield has worked, I don't know, for some reason has worked with a lot of people that, I mean, it's just the nature of the tortured artist, I guess. It's really, really sad. And the, like the no, it's Garfield's fault. It's Garfield's fault. He's the kiss of death. I, I don't know about that. You know, there's... But, uh, you know, you it's happened to Mel Gibson or Emma Stone or any of these other people he's worked with. But yeah. if, if it if it happens, though, 
you wonder whether eventually he might not start to think that, which would be a terrible thing. I, I, I don't but, know. I'm sure he was down for some years over, you know, he seems like a very nice person. I've never met the man. I don't know. Maybe he's really a jerk, but he seems like a, a decent enough guy. I, I don't know. How do you feel about that Percy character? I, that's the one, if I was to say, okay, are they giving a complete character for Vern Troyer to play, or are they just playing on the fact that he's a little person? Well, there's some of some of both is happening. There are, there are a few moments when he gets to show us that he really is more important to Dr. Parnassus than we might have at first perceived, and he understands Parnassus better than anyone else, including Parnassus's daughter. He sees the flaw, uh -huh. the huge flaw in Parnassus's character, which is this selfish selfishness as far as gambling is concerned and well it's a weakness it's an addiction but he's selfish about it and then he feels badly but what does he do about it not very much valentina's saved not by parnassus but maybe even in spite of him and that is a terrible shortcoming yeah there's that scene later when percy wearing a top hat and tails encounters the homeless destitute stinking old man parnassus on the street in london and kind of gives him a talking to gently but perceptively so you know, i think the intention was there to give him more of a character but i think there was another intention there as well this is a this is not a traveling circus it's a traveling it's as though gilliam has brought together a few different traditions the roving band of players in england from shakespeare's time to the what might be an american version of that and that would be a sideshow a circus act and it's as though he's trying to find a happy medium there maybe to try to make some of the ideas a little more universal make them apply to more of history than only theater history but they stop they stop at like a pub at you know, closing time when everybody's drunk, they stop outside a kind of a, a, a made up Home Depot type of place. Yeah. They're like very unusual. And I guess they, when, when Ledger's character starts to take over and suggest some, some changes goes to like the really posh part of, of London where there are rich people and parks in this mall or whatever. And creates a much more bizarre and frankly kind of meaningless set. Oh, he does. That of cost uh, you. It was all about getting money. Oh. In that, yeah. It's know. all about getting money. And, and so Valentina becomes a Godiva type character sitting there on the stage covered with nothing but her, her long, long, long hair, for example. That's, that's why I have a problem with that setup. Okay, the, yeah. yeah. Vern Troyer, I think this was like probably the worst bit was, but it was just, I guess it was to show how deceptive and how horrible the Ledger character is. Has uh, Vern Troyer dress up as a young black kid, yeah. a little kid who's this poor black kid. They put him in blackface. And it, I, that's the scene where I'm, I was a little bit humiliated for him. But he himself, the character, looks humiliated through that whole bit. And then we see the, and it's a really, I mean, I guess it's swinging for the fences as far as the satire of all these rich, entitled people coming up. Oh, I want I want to adopt him. I want that black baby yeah. or whatever. And when he's holding a basketball, I, I just don't think that sits that well now. This is uh, really not that old a movie, relatively speaking, 2009. Uh, unless you can see it as, as being an extreme example of exploitation. And yeah. they all felt exploited. Yeah. They all hated it, but mm -hmm. they all loved the money. And so it's a dark view of human nature. And the devil's it's, enjoying it's, all of that. Absolutely. They love the money. Yeah. It's risky. But, but I would say it, it has to be there. 
as disturbing as it might be, it's also true. People are have been exploited for superficial reasons, because they're unusual, because they're beautiful, because they're fill-in-the-blank, right? And often performers have been, well, let, let's say sometimes they've been forced to do things they hate doing, but their circumstances are such that they can't afford not to. And, and that makes sense, that's, and that's where yeah. most of these characters are. I, I, I sound like I'm apologizing for Gilliam. I'm not, but I am defending him. I don't think this is Gilliam being exploitive. I think this is Gilliam talking about exploitation and trying to show us how hideous it is. I don't think it's the greatest sin. I, I just think that's going to be a bit that triggers audiences now in 2021. One other thing I, I thought was a lot of fun is this random moment that happens in one of the sequences in his mind, which was a bit of a throwback to Monty Python. I think he was incorporating allusions to all of his films and, and his history, uh, where uh, those police officers come out and sing that song and do that dance, yes. but they're... <laughs> wearing uh pantyhose and you know yeah. I, I that was just it was just like you could get away with anything in, inside Parnassus's head that yeah. that worked really well and it was just this kind of but i couldn't help but have a smile on my face during that moment and that was just one of my favorite moments in the midst of the cgi cartoon sequences that we were getting there when i was just like okay i can't wait to get back to when we're back in front and out of his mind and into the the main london story and see how that turns out i, I think maybe the third act gets a little bit much and you're right it has a bit of a sentimental touch at the end but i think there were kind of allusions to with that homeless sequence in london slight allusions to in my opinion terry gilliam's best movie the fisher king so so i appreciated that and that sequence was very well acted by christopher Plummer. i think that might have been some of his stronger work in the film i like it i don't love it i don't know I think you'd maybe like it a bit more than I do, if I'm hearing you right. Maybe. But, well, you know, I, I think there are some things that could have made it much, much better. And, and he's got, as always, Gilliam has the courage to tell a story that's not simple and to tell a story in which he allows the inevitability of things being left hanging because that's life. There are these references to stories that come up all the time. Stop telling the story and the whole universe ceases to exist. That's Parnassus in, in, in his his first encounter with the devil. The devil is trying to convince him that this all this storytelling can stop and nothing will happen. Proves it to him, even. But uh, Parnassus maintains the idea that stories sustain the universe. And of course, there's an element of truth in that, and there's an element of truth in, in the devil's statement that it it doesn't matter. The world doesn't stop when people stop telling stories. But there's also that, that lovely little bit of a twist when Valentina says to Parnassus, you always stop in the middle of your story. Well, that's because he doesn't want his story to end because he knows yeah. the devil's going to win because the devil always wins. And nicely enough, in this story, the devil doesn't really win in the end. The devil loves the competition. He doesn't want the bet to end either. He wants to yeah. find some ways yeah. to keep it interesting so that Dr. Parnassus will continue playing with him, basically. Yeah. And, you know, there's this bizarre mutual respect they have for each other. Very well played by both actors. And I always love seeing Tom Waits in any movie. And so it was, that was a real, a real tr treat to have him in there. So... My first note when I, I watched this was, Tom Waits is the devil. What could go wrong? And the answer is nothing. It'll, it'll be other, other than I, I, I wanted more. Yeah, I think people should check out uh, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I'm not sure as many people have seen this. John Nash.
was one of the most brilliant minds of his generation. Welcome to Princeton. Who among you will be the next Einstein? Find a truly original idea. And it's the only way I will ever distinguish myself. It's the only way I will ever matter. He saw the world. Where's Nash? Out there, looking for his original idea. <laughs> in ways that no one could imagine. This flies to the face of 150 years of theory. Congratulations, John. It's the achievement of a lifetime. From producer Brian Grazer and director Ron Howard. I'm wondering... Professor Nash, if I can ask you to dinner. You do eat, don't you? How big is the universe? Infinite. How do you know for sure? I don't, I just believe it. It's the same with love, I guess. Sometimes, and other podcasters really don't care about the Academy Awards, but I, I still seem to care about it. And it brings a little bit of baggage sometimes to films I watch. I'll start off with the positive when we're talking about the best picture winning film from the year 2001, A Beautiful Mind, Russell Crowe. This, I have to say, is Russell Crowe's best performance, and he's a very, very good actor. I A few episodes ago, I, I was even defending his performance in Les Miserables, which was pretty much universally hated because he he can't really sing but he was still interesting to watch in that in that film i may be the only person russell crowe himself might not even like it but i liked him in it but a beautiful mind this was when he was at his height he had three best actor nominations in three years and here's what can happen with the academy sometimes he gave a, a, a very good performance another movie where he worked with christopher Plummer that i will be talking about later a very good performance in The Insider. The year before he was in L.A. Confidential wasn't nominated. Should have been. I think that's maybe his second best performance is L.A. Confidential. He's nominated. I think the next year was this movie called Gladiator, which I know some people out there like. I despise. I think it's one of the worst movies ever made and I think it's one of the worst, maybe the worst movie that the Academy has ever chosen as the best picture of the year in 2000. But beyond that, I think it was a bit of guilt for not giving it to Russell Crowe the year before for The Insider. They gave it to Kevin Spacey for an, for American Beauty. So they decide, okay, well, this is, we need to reward him. So for a very bland, not challenging performance, he won the Oscar for Gladiator. Now, that's everybody else who was nominated against him should have won. And then, once you know, the very next year, A Beautiful Mind comes along, and he gives a better performance than The Insider, way, way better than, than Gladiator. And so this is the movie that if they had held off, they could have given him best actor for. But that year, he was up against Denzel Washington for Training Day. Going back to 99, Denzel Washington was nominated to part of this group where they both lost to Spacey for best actor. And they were still thinking, oh, probably should have given Denzel Washington the Oscar for Malcolm, Malcolm X or Hurricane. So let's give him the award for Training Day. So he beat Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, one of his worst performances is the one that he has an Oscar for Best Actor for, long story short. But he was hot. He had been in four years in a row. He was in Best Picture nominated films. Three years in a row, he's nominated for Best Actor and he kept topping himself. And he is the good part of this. The, the thing that's not good is, you know, unfortunately he didn't win Best Actor for this role and I I think when you see it every time I see it how could you not think that he he should have 
won the, that award for it. On the other hand, this movie did win Best Picture in a very, very good year for films. And it was not really, I probably was in my top 10, but to be honest, it was not my choice for Best Picture. I think it was a very Academy Awards sentimental for your consideration picture. So those will be some of the criticisms I have for it, even though I do like the movie a lot. Don't get me wrong. The bigger sin to me in all of this was Ron Howard, and I like Ron Howard, but he won Best Director for beautiful mind going back to the academy again there's this movie called gosford park directed by robert altman who was one of the greatest directors of all time an american who went over to britain and directed a cast of 40 some british actors there were a couple americans in the cast seamlessly and created this great film that was so professionally handled and this is a man who had been snubbed and snubbed and snubbed and snubbed that was and that ended up being the last time he was nominated for a competitive academy award and their last chance to reward him and it wouldn't have been a career award because that was a much better directing job than a beautiful mind here we had a four-year consideration script we had a chance to have all the bells and whistles of hollywood thrown in there for a very a, a kid who grew up in the hollywood system to get his chance to win an Academy Award. Yes, it's too bad he wasn't nominated for Best Director for Apollo 13, which was, I think, a better directed film by him. But I think it's a very good film, but it shouldn't have won the awards. Some of the awards it did win, but it should have won Best Actor for Russell Crowe. <laughs> but the other really wonderful thing in there, and I agreed with this one, was Jennifer Connelly, won Best Supporting Actress playing his wife, and some could argue is a lead role, and it maybe should have been in the lead actress category. And that same Marissa Tomei for In the Bedroom, which was my favorite movie that year. Maybe she should have won supporting and Connolly should have been considered for lead. But anyway, all of that nonsense rant about the Academy Awards. I really <laughs> like A Beautiful Mind. It's a true story about John Nash with Hollywood touches. They leave out some pretty important things along the way, but and it's based, based on a book about his life. And he is just a brilliant mathematician, but he is in his own head and he does not work well interacting with people he wants to connect with the world but he has trouble and he ends up eventually meeting one of his students played by jennifer Connolly, who they fall in love and and they, they later have a daughter together but it shows his academic journey and shows how he goes from only really having one friend who is his roommate in college into the situation where he's teaching but he gets caught up in working on the secret government project led by ed harris i love ed harris wonderful guy who also lost Best Actor in the Gladiator year for a better performance. <laughs> playing Pollock he should have won Best Actor Ed Harris is is fine in the, the role he serves the role well I liked seeing him he was great in Apollo 13 working with Ron Howard again but there's a problem some things are just not adding up with this and you know so if you haven't seen A Beautiful Mind I'm going to spoil it for you right now a lot of what we have we see and what John Nash experiences is not really happening and then we get a very very strong look at the various challenges of mental health issues and that's where we eventually get to Christopher Plummer who does play his psychiatrist in the hospital and figuring out the best way to treat him through some torturous shock therapy which destroys the brilliance of this man and makes him question whether he should be taking his medication or not because then he sees these people that he seems so real to him and seems so real to us as the audience because we see the movie from his point of view but he can't 
might think, and he is not the man that he is when he's on that medication, and he is convinced that he can, you know, without taking his medication, he can battle this. He can use all of his strength to still be the true genius that he is, but also live through a world of, of having schizophrenia. Uh, I don't think it's great advice, personally, to be advocating <laughs> to those who have schizophrenia to be off their meds and try to do it through sheer will. And I'm not sure that everything was as rosy as it's made out to be in the third act of the film but in the middle part there's some tough scenes and Crow is so good he is so good in every moment of this he plays John Nash from I mean you get some old age makeup towards the end but from being a young man to being quite an old man and there is not a false note in that performance for a moment so all like I, most of the points I'm going to give the film upon revisiting it are for Crow's great performance but Jennifer Connelly man that proposal scene a proposal scenes have been done a million times in the movies but that one was so clever where she has to convince him that love is something that really exists and it's worth taking the chance and I, it, it is is so well well done but we also see in her performance how tough it is how she suffers and she struggles and particularly when she has this young child this is actually a son i did i say daughter before uh young son I think you said so. Yeah, okay. Yeah, young son. She has to look out for her child and, and that child's safety, and she's really torn. But her work in this film is, is, is amazing. So I think the acting is maybe a, a notch better than the writing. The writing's a kind of Hollywood-esque, true story, inspiring type of story. It's well enough written, but it follows this kind of Hollywood formula. But the writing is that much better than the directing, which was, I think, you could have given this to any competent Hollywood director, and they would have turned it into a pretty darn good film so i ron howard i I know there's a lot he would have done and would have added so it's not badly directed but just for him to win best director of the year um i'm not sure was was quite right i think one of the the things that that howard deserves some credit for and praise for is the fact that as an audience member you get so wrapped up in what seems to be the reality that you are surprised when you discover that nash has been let's let's use the word delusional and that to me is what really makes the film powerful and effective it's that we get to and of course it's also a wonderful performance but we get to vicariously experience just a tiny bit of what it must be like and that's very much to Howard's credit as well there's so many ways in which little clues and hints could have been there but we don't notice them until after the fact when you rewatch it that's one of its great strengths I mean, it was an important purpose of the film to help us understand how difficult it must be. And that is accomplished mostly by Crow's performance, but also by the decisions that Howard has made as a director. And and so I don't want to diminish that. And again, I, I saw it in theaters pretty early on and I, I was fooled and I was like, okay, this makes a lot of sense when the reveal happens. Uh, and even then you're, you're try they try to trick you again with it later. It's less convincing. And when he starts to see them again and starts to uh, really believe that it was all part of how clever the government is to make it seem that way. But David Fincher did not win Best Director for Fight Club. Christopher Nolan did not win Best Director for Memento. M. Night Shyamalan was nominated but didn't win Best Director for The Sixth Sense. There were a ton of movies that had these gotcha types of plot twists in them around that time. This one is based on a true story even though I I think it's a very dramatized true story. I I think there's some things that feel a little bit more Hollywood 
it than than grounded in reality and how it's presented. And so I just think if, if every like Alfred Hitchcock wasn't was he even nominated for Psycho? Let's go back that far with one of the great plot twists of all time, right? So I think because your screenplay has a plot twist and you are able to you know convince the audience of of one thing. I mean, I'm not sure that's. I mean, it shows that he directed it in a competent way. But I think this there is are a other characters to do that just as well as as Ron Howard did. Maybe even I, better. Think, I think this is a lot more than a plot twist. It's a fundamental the thematic necessity, and and so for that reason, it's essential that it work. It's not a neat trick that's going to sell tickets. It's a necessary piece of the art. And it is in the other films I just mentioned before that too. Uh, yeah, it's it's, it's yeah, pretty really to psycho. I mean, maybe the it's a it's essential. Yeah. More. It's pretty. Key to the it's a mental health piece in Fight Club as well. I'm not a huge Fight Club fan, by the way. I'm just you know just yeah. mentioning that. I'm memento memento is about somebody who has uh, this short short term memory loss and and has a psychological journey to go on as well too. I I, I just think I, maybe I, I'm being too hard on Ron Howard for this, but if he, he felt like he's part of the Hollywood establishment and Robert Altman has been outside of that for years. And Robert Altman, this was the one that he should have won Best Director for as well as probably a few others along the way but maybe I shouldn't be penalizing a beautiful mind for that because people love this movie and for those who haven't seen it I think they, they should check it out the acting is great you're going to enjoy the story and there are enough bells and whistles and, and and tricks in the photography I did find the music score as beautiful as it is a bit heavy-handed in the film I don't know you know I don't remember even noticing this was the first time I noticed it and maybe it's because I was being super critical this time I don't know but I, I could have done without it in a few a few points it felt like this is a for your consideration types of moments where we didn't need that dr dramatic underscore to feel you know the emotion of what the characters are feeling at that particular time if that makes sense yeah. oh no, it, it makes absolute yeah. sense. Yeah, but I mean, there's lots but, of movies that like that have done this yeah. too. So it's it's kind of a standard, particularly back in you know one, it was a standard standard thing. So yeah, I, um, I, I may be sounding like I don't like a beautiful mind. I mean, super hard on it. I mean, I actually think you know it's it still gets me there. I I got emotional in the places I'm supposed to get emotional in there. There's there's a lot of very heartfelt stuff. I do want to mention Paul Bettany. He plays Charles, the roommate who we were like thank goodness this poor guy has somebody to kind of listen to him and straighten him out it's cool because he doesn't get along with the the guy he's all these guys he's competing with to be who's the most brilliant mathematician uh, at princeton and ha having this you know english major who is a little bit more relaxed and has perspective on life that's great until we realize okay but i i do think paul bettany's an interesting guy he he, he got a lot of work around this time and i think this is probably the high watermark in his career yet there's an intention so there I mean he, he has some good scenes but this wasn't you know and it nor should it have been a completely fleshed out character but he he worked really well with Crow in, in those scenes early in the film in particular stuff with Harris and and Bettany and that little girl towards the end it becomes a bit much but it's showing us that okay he's not cured they are still there and they still appear as real as possible and it's taking all of his power to to block them out and focus on who the real people are 
far. And there's a scene that's totally set up there where uh, he's kind of not getting a lot of respect on Princeton campus, but then this moment when you know he's 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 won the Nobel Prize and all of the the faculty give him these pens as a sign of respect. I know it's a four-year consideration moment, but that was the one where I was just like, after all this guy has been through, that he got to you know he's basically like this guy who got to hang around campus that was eccentric and you know we, we were both on campus at the U of S there were some people around there like that who weren't necessarily going to win the Nobel Prize but for him to be able to have that moment when he suffered through so much that was that was that was a beautiful moment in the film and, and a rather horrific moment in the film of course is the scene in which he's he undergoes the electroshock therapy mm-hmm. and that brings us back to Christopher Plummer I think he's just brilliant in this everything is understated and subtle no matter yeah. what he does and he is able to convincingly appear to be this evil doctor that's how he's perceived mm-hmm. by Nash and and yet the same basis is there the same technique the same way he turns his head he, he's the same character but we see him in such a positive light when he's speaking with Connolly's character and yeah. that becomes part of the, our realization that Nash's perception of things is just a little off but of course there he is too supervising this electroshock therapy and is seemingly unmoved by the horror that's in front of him but i don't know that seemed to be considered to be the answer and you know we're, we're doing them some good and yes it's horrible while they endure it but well and to put it in context i think chronologically this even though it's a true story chronologically this timing would have been even earlier than the timing for the movie one flew over the cuckoo's nest which was set in the 60s where that was that, that was how they approached yeah. uh, treatment at the, the time psychiatry has a lot to answer for and I was just as horrified uh, it actually reminded me of Cuckoo's Nest and that's a huge compliment because that's one of my favorite movies of all time in, in, those, in those scenes but you, you yeah. see how Plummer kind of appears to be like this Russian spy but then he really is this caring doctor and he does everything like he, he comes to the house and he, he tries to help out and, and they ultimately reject what, what he the treatment that he's wanting to provide I, again I, I don't know about that message necessarily but it's what they did and yeah. it, it does play up in the love story when it looks like Jennifer Conley is going to for her own safety leave him and then no, she comes back and says we're going to do this together you and I it's very touching I'm not sure that their marriage was quite even though we see some struggles I think it was a lot more tumultuous than it's portrayed in the film but it feels good that kind of love story at the center of the yeah. film works because of the acting by Jennifer Connelly and Russell Crowe. They're very good together. So I was happy to, to that Connelly at least won. And yeah, Crowe, it was it was a close call. And it's nothing against Denzel Washington's performance too, because I, I understood why he won that year too. And it wasn't like, it, it was way better than the Gladiator uh, win the year before. So it wasn't like a bad performance beat out Crowe's best performance. But it's just the fact that if the Academy had been a little bit more patient and realized, no, this guy is going to be good in a lot of stuff for many, many years. Yeah. Let's let's wait until he's given this masterpiece of a performance because there is really not much I can fault in what Crow does. I mean, he, he he's a guy who disappears into his characters. He's a bit of a chameleon. I'm, I'm not sure he's been given the scripts the last few years that he was had at that, that time, but I, I know he can still do it if he's given the chance to do it. I mean, he's doing kind of these road rage horror movies like Unhinged now. I hope he'll get back to working with Michael Mann or, or working with Ron Howard again and 
you know, getting back to, you know, he, he gave several good performances after the Cinderella man and, and some movies like that. Um, maybe he's, maybe he's ready for some of these Christopher Plummer type roles. Possibly. He's always played a little bit more of a heavier presence, I'd say, than, than, than Plummer and intimidating presence, depending on, on the role. I mean, you can't compare the, the three, yeah. the four characters in four years as much as I'm good. I've seen bad, negative things about Gladiator. That character is completely different than John Nash and yeah, polar opposite. They're all played by the same man, but he appears as different people. So I, I would. We, we've gone a while on this one, mostly because of me ranting about the Academy Awards <laughs> and Ron Howard winning an award. I don't think he he should have won for, but it's it's a very good film, and so I, I I do hope those who haven't checked it out. I think this is one of those ones that for those who haven't, it'd be like when when I was kind of first interested in movies, and I went back and I saw a movie like Ordinary People that maybe shouldn't have won Best Picture, but is still a very heartbreaking, beautiful film and and is, is very much worth people's time. Well, this is one of those, and and I mean one. Plummer does this sort of thing in every in every film he appears in, in every stage production he's in. There's He has a secret. It's no secret, but he has a secret. Everything is done with precision. Every move, every glance, the way he interprets and delivers every line, even if it's just a hello. It's never just a hello. And that really shows a lot in this film. I'm not sure why it's so painfully obvious in this film, but if anyone wanted a, a, a quickie example of how it's done, watch A Beautiful Mind and watch Christopher Plummer yeah. and see how he does what he does. Sums up how how to act, period. And he shares the screen very effectively mm -hmm. with the other characters who have flashier roles. Yeah, he knows what the story is. And yes, of course he knows his character, but he sees his job as being more than only his character. And it's to be part of telling the story, all of the story. And and in a lot of the movies we're talking about, he's playing off of actors who have very flashy roles. And he does that balancing act and plays those scenes really well. Lois Clayman, what the heck? Oh, my God. You killed her. This is not a trial. This is a preliminary inquest in all cases of death, as suspicious in nature. Someone to see you here. I told you I don't want no lawyer. Dolores, it's your daughter. When was your last visit? Fifteen years ago. They didn't kill her. I'm not murder that witch anymore, and I'm wearing a diamond tiara. We need a piece of your hair, Miss Clavin. Take what you want. I ain't doing any beauty pageants this week. That is the last guy in the world you want to make an enemy out of. Motive money. I ain't making one. I'm keeping one. Eyewitness testimony. And what is that supposed to mean? A documented history of threats. You're going to tell me you don't remember him? Selena. We've met before, Miss uh, St. George. Leave me alone! I was the investigator when your father died. No! Maybe we should finish what was started 20 years ago. Honest to God, don't remember, do you? I remember you hitting him! <laughs> You're an old hand at this, aren't you, Miss Clayman? People do have a tendency to take some bad falls when you're around. What did you do to him, Mommy? Why can't you believe my mother? Because she's done it before! You don't believe me, do you? Selena, get in the house, right now. I am in the house.
I, I don't know where to start with this one, but this, uh, if we're going to talk about a versus battle, Christopher Plummer versus Kathy Bates, you're no, you know you're going to be in for a good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we get in Taylor Hackford, very good director, somewhat underrated, I might argue. His one Academy Award nomination was for the biopic of Ray. This was a few years before that, but he's very good at working somewhat in the horror genre, even though this is actually not as much of a horror story, even though it is based on a novel by Stephen King. When Stephen King sobered up in the 90s, he was producing a ton of, like a a couple books a year, some of them very thick. Dolores Claiborne is a very short novel as far as the Stephen King world goes, but it's also a tricky one. It's written in first person in the voice of Dolores, which is a very main type of voice. And it was fairly short, uh, shortly after it, it was published that they, they made the movie and cast Kathy Bates, who had won an Academy Award in another Stephen King adaptation of Misery, as Dolores. And Dolores finds herself in a position where she's accused of murdering a rich woman who she has been the, the maid for, basically a servant for, for decades. And there was a mystery in the past around the death of her husband, which has led uh, this police officer officer played by Christopher Plummer to aggressively pursue these murder charges against Dolores. And in another brilliant casting decision, the great Jennifer Jason Lee plays Dolores's daughter who is in New York and she's a reporter and she gets some very exciting and prominent interviews, but she needs to go back home to Maine where she hasn't been for a long time to deal with the situation with her mother and she's not quite sure who told her or who alerted her about this and that's kind of revealed as the movie goes on and there's this real tension between the mother and daughter but there are all kinds of secrets to be had and I'm not sure I want to spoil a lot of the secrets in this review because I'm not sure a ton of people have seen Dolores Claiborne we may have to talk around it or I don't know if we have to then I would do an extreme spoiler warning for this this movie. But when we get to some of the emotional stuff that is happening with Jennifer Jason Lee, it is it is heartbreaking. It is powerful. It is powerful in the novel, and it is just as powerful in this very faithful adaptation. Maybe as far as the dialogue, they had some of the, maybe a little bit too much of the Stephen King dialogue, where it doesn't always sound that great in the film to the ears, but you can auto correct when you're when you're reading it. But that said, I mean these. Yeah, yeah. These two actors, and I just also want to do a big shout out, like David Strathairn, he's another character actor, he shows up in a ton of stuff, but normally he shows up as a very, very nice guy. <laughs> yeah. He is... Loris's alcoholic hu- uh, husband and his scenes are in flashback and he is a nasty nasty abusive human being and uh, it's an ugly role and I, I, I have to applaud an actor like that for taking a risk and playing such an ugly character and not holding back. His scenes with, with Kathy Bates are horrifying but what I like about Dolores is that she fights back. It looks like she's going to take it in this, this early early scene flashback where they're arguing and you realize no she's not going to take 
it. I am an enormous fan of this. I think it is a, a gem. I'm so excited to be able to talk about Dolores Claiborne because it's a novel I enjoy from a probably my favorite novelist. And I think they did a really, really good job. Not a perfect job, but I think they did a really, really good job of bringing it to the screen. There's one point you made that I completely agree with. The problem with, well, I haven't read the novel, so mm -hmm. I'll just take your word for it, that it's Stephen King's dialogue. And sometimes it... it kind of pulls us out of it. As funny as the line is when when Bates's character Dolores describes Plummer's character as Mr. Grand Pooba of Upper Butt Crack. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, we're we're not in, in some bad line. That's we're, bad we're not line. in some cheap and tacky comedy here. And what you're causing us to do is laugh at that and miss what's under the scene. Rewound it after we stopped laughing so that I could see what else was going on. And what else was going on was important, but that line wasn't. Here, so yeah, there is there is occasionally a problem with that. There's a problem for me. Early in the film, when we cut to New York, mm -hmm. that whole time period in New York, focusing on the daughter, is very very slow developing and as the film continued i started to realize why it why i just wanted it out of there because it it made some of the other really well displayed moments less effective because we were going over that territory again in a better more effective way so we didn't need all the scenes in new york it might be better if this entire thing were set in well they shot it in nova scotia if they had just stayed in nova scotia and anything pertinent to new york could be handled with our end of of the telephone call could have been handled was handled really well with little tidbits of information about her life in New York and why she was unhappy there too. And it got me thinking, you know, Dolores Claiborne in the hands of the right playwright would, would become a brilliant memory play. It's The movie is a memory play and Hackford handles it just brilliantly. Very effective. It's an excellent film. I liked it a lot. But I thought that one problem could have been solved if, if he had written it as though Tennessee Williams were telling the story. Even let it be a little bit a little bit more obviously expressionistic than it, it, it I mean expressionism is not something you usually see in film. It it is more common on the stage and it's very effective, especially with plays by people like Tennessee Williams. But this story lends itself to that and I think it could have worked with a few elements, uh, expressionistic elements, even without that. And even if we just leave in the scenes that are kind of slow, the combination of, of really fine performances and really great storytelling otherwise, it's, it makes this film very, very much worth watching. But I still would love to see somebody take this and turn it into a memory play. Yeah, I, I think it would be great on the stage. I mean, Misery was turned into a, a Broadway play. Okay, get, getting back, and I, I, it's been so many years since I read the novel, but I just remember it was it was from Dolores's. It was her voice in first person, and it was written in the dialect. and And so I don't remember how the daughter, the New York section was was actually handled. I think it's in there to to give us more information about Jennifer Jason Lee's character. Also, the fact that she essentially be because she comes to see her mother, she loses the chance at this major story that she had been working on, but. 
got the other piece in there, and it's not an original idea. So, I mean, I'm not totally going to defend this, but uh, it does go towards the the payoff to her character is that she's had an affair with her boss, and she's no longer sleeping with her boss, and he takes the story away from her. And how men have this power, and they are taking this power away from women, and it's a little bit meant to be a bit of a parallel to what Dolores has gone through in, in a different way but it also is there so that jennifer jason lee comes in as the new york big shot and she's like i can only stay for a couple days mom i need to go and do the story and, and then she still keeps that lie up even when the story has been taken away from her so that it was a bit of background maybe it's it's a bit too long or maybe it could be done in a different way i wouldn't want it to be explained through some monologue or something or well, something. It, it isn't though the moment you mentioned when it's clear that that this boss has been an exploitive asshole. That is one of the telephone conversations she has from her mother's town. I get, sorry, her own hometown. And and that's fine. I'm thinking, well, okay, all of this information, well, we already saw that, maybe not quite as decisively as the phone call, but we already saw that early in uh, in the movie, but we didn't care about it then. We care about it now. So this is the time to show us. And they did, which takes me back again to that previous scene to say I don't think that was necessary. We also have to get her to the island because there has to be a, a reason why why Jennifer Jason Lee goes there because she she's really hesitant. She doesn't want to go back to this place. She doesn't necessarily know why. She just has this memory that her mom was like she's pretty much she's figured out that her, her mom was responsible for her father's death and like they would fight but she has in her mind that her, her mom is the villain and she wants nothing to do with her she could have gone the rest of her life living in new york as unhappy as she is but not really recognizing that a lot of the patterns that she has in her life are because of what's what happened to her that she has repressed in a very dramatic way. Jennifer Jason Lee, I think, is it's not un- uncommon for her to, to be able to play like the, the tough, independent exterior that we see from, from her character, Selena. But when she's not able to to drink or to, to take these pills, and we start to see her like when she's feeling this pain that she can't explain, that, that breakdown scene is really, really good. Bates has the flashier role here, but I think Jennifer Jason Lee is exceptional in this film. I I, I knew that I loved what she did years ago when I when I last saw it, but I thought it was kind of equally her and Bates together as like a dream team. I think in Bates' wheelhouse, we've seen her play roles like this before. She, yeah. she does it really well, and some of those scenes, just her facial expressions alone, I give us everything we need in the film. I, I think they were they were both exceptional, but the cast around them was, was terrific. A criticism of that New York section though is Jennifer Jason Lee's boss is the, the great player right of, of one man shows and, and stage actor Eric Bogosian and I don't know why he signed on maybe he's a fan of the novel or something but he's really given nothing to do it wasn't much of a yeah, character, uh, no character an actor like Bogosian who can do so many other things so he's kind of there and he's a face and at this point he's very well known but but he was just kind of there and it wasn't compared to the, what other cast members uh, are given to do Judy Partiff plays Vera Donovan, who is this rich woman who is very, very particular about her place. But over time, Dolores wins her over, but still treats her horribly as this servant. She has some very
very effective scenes too. I mean, it's one of those great stories are very good together, aren't they? But Plummer is good. And he is, I mean, there's a, you could argue there's a lot of antagonists in this movie. Like David Strathairn in particular was a very nasty, as Stephen King does paint his villains in broad strokes and yeah. as, as bullies and, 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 and jerks and stuff. I think Plummer kind of takes a character who could be viewed in that way and, and brings some humanity to him in some ways. This is a guy who feels like like the, the big mistake in his career is that he could not convict Dolores Claiborne of, of killing her husband. And he needs to right that wrong because he sees her as a serial murderess and he thinks that his cause is noble. But what he does is so despicable, yet you can flip the story around and you could totally understand understand him and that's the brilliance of plumber i think he's another really great supporting take in that here not as flashy as kathy bates or even jennifer jason lee who's it's a little bit clunky i mean they have this inquest where jennifer jason lee gives a big speech that kind of settles everything in the story again i think that's maybe works well in the stephen king novel better than it does on film yeah but you don't feel it as much because the acting is so good and Plummer is so good in that one-on-one with Jennifer Jason Lee late in the film. I, I, I just this is one I, I want more people to know about and check out. I, I I thought it might have a little bit more of a life after initial home video, and I, I'm not sure a ton of people know about this or have seen Dolores Claiborne. Yeah. You mentioned that inquest scene and the big speech. You know what saves it? What saves that seemingly clunky speech? And it seems as though Lee's character has changed character. Well, off screen, she's had this, sorry, not entirely off screen. We see the beginning of this, uh, of her realization and, and how that's now changed her perception of her mother. But this story is about perception and how it changes. Yeah. But what saves it, what saves that particular scene from clunkiness is these three or four sideways glances from Kathy Bates. She just turns her eyes and there's a bit of surprise there. And her daughter is finally getting it. And she's dreamed of her daughter finally being able to do, realize the truth and and come through it. It's happening right there. And Bates just beautifully shows that happening for her character, that realization. And for me, that's what I kept doing. I kept looking at Kathy Bates during Lee's monologue to see what she was going to do next. And all it was was just a few. It's the precision, right? It's it's the, the timing and the precision of a very subtle move. She didn't even have a line. All she did was give a look. Plummer does some of that too. His look is is showing things like fear and fighting back panic and resisting the urge to get angry at that young cop played by the wonderful, one of my favorite actors. John C. Riley. Yes. And and how does he show us getting past that? And it's okay. I, I love him anyway, you know, just a pat on the shoulder as he walks by. Because the guy's just totally pulled the entire case out from underneath him because he had to be honest but that character is honest that character does live with these people and love the people in his community and he knows them and he knows Dolores's character so he's a very reliable witness and finally he gets to speak I thought that was that was a pretty significant moment too because they're not in that case they're not allowing the character to be overly simple and probably Plummer wouldn't have allowed it anyway but no, never. that's yeah. all it takes it's just those little things and there were two of the greats both doing it in the same scene just the subtle yeah. little things a look a glance a hand on a shoulder a half smile uh, look down and let the eyes get bigger like I, Bates does that at one point too she really didn't expect to hear that so much subtext going on and of course if you've ever been to Nova Scotia it's pretty nice to see little glimpses of 
lovely Lunenburg. And oh, I, I had to rewind so many scenes because Laurie would say, I was there with my mom. <laughs> I, I think Lee delivers that monologue well. I think the writing oh, yeah. is a little bit of a problem, but Lee is a good actor in there too. They, they were all very good. But what was unique about that scene is throughout the movie, Dolores talks and talks and talks and gets herself into trouble. And Selena, the Jennifer Jason Lee, is somewhat monosyllabic or she doesn't talk a lot or she's trying to, to get her mom to to be quiet and not make things worse and here Dolores says nothing she's quiet while her daughter does all the talking and there's a reverse of roles so there's something clever in that dynamic it's visually interesting we haven't really talked about there's a, a total eclipse of the sun which is really important in the flashback sequence and it, it is here's one of the, the the problems is it is a wonderful feminist novel and film created by men <laughs> King wrote the novel the source material Taylor Hackford's male director is married to Helen Mirren so I mean he knows you know if he's paid attention to his wife he knows something about women but <laughs> if he didn't pay attention to his wife she wouldn't be his wife <laughs> I'm I'd be curious how this story would be handled by a female director and uh, a female screenwriter uh, I should also mention that Tony Gilroy did the adaptation very good screenwriter was writer director for a, a fine film called Michael Clayton as well so this was a very talented group of people that made a very good film in the 90s. It had kind of an early in the year release. And I know some people had had talked about it a little bit in the Oscar buzz that year, but it had, was too far removed from the Academy members' minds. And I think Bates and Lee were terrific, but uh, some of the supporting work uh, by Parfit and Plummer and uh, Strathairn, scary, scary role, very, very well acted. John C. Riley doesn't have a whole lot to do but he it's it's just nice to see him in there this is a before he became as well known as he is he was the 90s were he 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 was working a lot you spot him in a lot of stuff in the 90s before people started to really pay attention to him and he was always a welcome presence in the movie it's just the only mystery to me is eric bogosian's just such a dynamic actor and he's not given a whole lot to do other than to just be this jerky boss that uh jennifer jason lee has to deal with but it makes sense that she would in her new york life be attracted to a man like this after what's happened to her yeah very much so it all makes sense it's just we have to mention one more ellen muff a very young ellen muff playing the young and extremely vulnerable oh her scenes and she looks they look like they the jennifer jason lee have some younger like she looks like you totally believe and i would never have thought of that but when you see them together in the movie i totally get it but she does such a wonderful job of uh, not just being vulnerable but being absolutely enamored of one character and absolutely despising another and it, it's that horrible occurrence when someone who's being abused sees the abuser as as their hero and the one who's really looking out for them the one who really does care as the villain and i was reminded of uh, a wonderful play called see bob run when i thought about that canadian play but a great dad Daniel McIver. Yeah, I've always seen that in Seabob Run. That character is like a character that a young Jennifer Jason Lee would have just had a field day with. Yeah. And obviously a young Ellen Muth as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah because she plays that experience, uh, I think, extremely well. Yeah. Now, of course, I became a fan of Ellen Muth because of the TV series Dead Like Me, but this movie certainly didn't make me any less of a fan of her work. It's not a dumbed down role for a, a young actor. It's very good. Thank you for mentioning that one because that's I would have 
felt bad that I didn't mention how, how good that performance is too. I mean, I, it's tough for me to pick my favorite performance. I might lean towards like Bates. You have to get up pretty early in the morning to, to compete with Kathy Bates, but her, she compliments almost the, the performance together with Jennifer Jason Lee. They work so well together. I believe this is the only time they worked in a movie together. It's too bad because they had uh, great screen chemistry and both have energies that work really well together for this film. And I believe them as mother and daughter through through the whole thing you, you know what i was yeah. reminded of the the chemistry that worked so beautifully between bates and jessica tandy in fried green tomatoes there's a similarity isn't there yeah. something yeah just about the there was just a natural i don't want to use the word chemistry because it means different things to different people and we're probably all wrong there's collaboration perhaps or yeah they're on the same wavelength and yeah. it's clear that they are they have the same purpose in the scene and they lose themselves in the characters who also have this important connection even though it's been kind of ripped apart it's still there and tough to do but they manage to do it very well i just probably will give jennifer jason lee a notch above because i i still think she's underrated somehow i get excited every time i see that she's in the movie and and she's very selective with her projects now and i think she she only picks really good scripts and to me this was a good script and and yeah not a perfect movie but it is one that people should definitely check out i and i think everything else about it is better than the script and i'm not saying it's a terrible script but it does have those those flaws and problems but there certainly isn't any flaw or problem in any performance in, in the cinematography and in, in the direction it's i like the script good. as far as the the balance i'm a fan of the book so i'm probably a fan of the script the balance between the present situation which is it's in the 70s that the story takes place but the, the present of that story and the seamless flashback sequences and going back and forth that way. And that, that kind of balance as we more of the mystery gets unraveled throughout as yeah. the book did as well. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of the film. So maybe I'm apologizing for the script. But there are a few lines that you're right. You'll laugh at or you'll be kind of like, who talks like that? Yeah. I this, uh, Sorry, there was a point I was going to make, even though this we're going very long with all these reviews. But did you notice that? In Kathy Bates' dialogue, she had a lot of, like, in, in the one that you mentioned there, she was using friggin' and she was using all these words to replace swear words. But as they got more and more into the past and stuff that happened, she started to drink a little bit more. And she started to swear quite a bit more. And so I, I think the way she talked was some sort of a way of trying to avoid swearing and getting herself into more trouble, more judgment from the community than she already had because she's she's treated horribly by everyone because they all think that she murdered her husband and is just a miserable person. And so I think there are reasons for that kind of clunky language, but still, even Kathy Bates couldn't make it sound naturalistic so but i, yeah. lo I love the yeah. i love the thick main accent though that was a lot of fun <laughs> yeah you know, i enjoyed that and plumber's dialect they're all they're all very very good at that yeah Clayborne. absolutely see that movie something stalks the streets something possessed of animal cunning and fury i understand you know something of the white chapel murders i have seen the man Known as Jack the Ripper. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson plunge into the Victorian underworld, seeking the answers to the most puzzling case in the annals of crime. Who is Jack the Ripper? Ah! 
Why does he let them keep you? I don't know! A story that at last reveals the identity of history's most elusive murderer. A stunning cast brought together with an astonishing story. One of the great screen entertainments in the classic tradition. Murder by Decree. In the oldest of the movies we're talking about, in the one lead role that we're talking about that Plummer had, it was basically Christopher Plummer playing Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper is the basis of Murder by Decree. It is actually directed by Bob Clark, who's a a Canadian, and has a very weird filmography. He made one of my favorite, and I might argue like one of the key slasher movies, a Canadian horror movie called Black Christmas, which was Mm. one of the first to use that kind of forced perspective where the killer is walking around and and you're seeing the victims and the murders happen that way. He used that again to somewhat effective, maybe a little bit muddied in places in Murder by Decree, but I think it works, but some things are a little bit uneven. Sometimes it's a Sherlock Holmes story Sometimes it's a a horror movie. Sometimes it's kind of a bit of a dark comedy. There's some really tough, dramatic stuff. And a lot of it connected to uh, Genevieve, pronounce her last name. Genevieve Bougeot. Who has just a horrible story to tell. It's just kind of a one-scene, remarkable performance that she has. Very disturbing. But really good cast. And that seems to be the case with a lot of the movies we're talking about. But strange. Very <laughs> strange how it... Uh, so Plummer plays Sherlock Holmes. James Mason, who I've, I've talked about in, in connection to The Verdict, and I've talked about with uh, Lolita, Kubrick's Lolita... He plays Watson. I don't know if this is controversial or not, but I actually think that James Mason steals the entire film. I really like his Watson, maybe even more than Plummer's Sherlock Holmes. And maybe part of it is I'm such a fan of the Sherlock TV show with Benedict Cumberbatch. And even though this was years before and based on the old novels, I I kept thinking of the contrast between Plummer and Benedict Cumberbatch as I was watching different scenes. But James Mason, somehow, I wasn't I wasn't thinking about that TV show. He kind of created his own character and his own energy, and I, I really appreciated that. John Gielgud comes in for this extended one-scene role. It's kind of the climax of the film, but it, it's kind of similar in the Dolores Claiborne criticism of of the the scene where everything gets explained and resolved. I think it's clunkier in this movie, but uh, John Gielgud plays the prime minister and he doesn't give a bad performance ever. So when you see him, I'm happy to see him, but I I, I kept like looking for him throughout the movie. And it isn't until after I thought was there were about two or three false ends to this movie, but after one of the false ends and then it's like, Oh yeah, we have another scene. Oh, there he is. He's playing the prime minister in this, in this scene. The biggest mystery to me is Donald Sutherland. Okay, so we have some Canadians in in this movie. Donald Sutherland plays Robert Lees, who's this kind of this this medium who is key to kind of trying to put some pieces together in this case. I'm not sure who did his his makeup for the film. I I, I don't know what drugs Sutherland was on or if this is how he was directed. But his mustache, his whole costume. I, 
I unfortunately found myself laughing through all of his scenes and his scenes are actually serious and so heartfelt and he is so he is he's so serious and so pained with what he's doing but it doesn't come across very well so I have this it's kind of this mixed bag of performances and an interesting enough Sherlock Holmes story which has the Jack the Ripper story in there and the Jack the Ripper stuff is a horror story. Then we have the detective story with Plummer doing a really good job. Very dramatic performances and then these goofy performances. And I, I'm just left with a, kind of an uneven thing where I, I don't know, I started off most of the movie kind of recommending it. And I left at the end, I was kind of like, I was probably my thumb was firmly up until I got the scene where we, we have these talking heads. Like it was something out of a play for a 20 minute scene towards the end at a point when I thought we were kind of moving into the resolution of the film and then it just kind of ends and I just feel a little bit mixed about it where I'm, I'm very wavering I still think I like it enough and if you're a fan of Christopher Plummer and you like these cast members and I always love movies from the 70s I was excited to see another movie from the 70s I hadn't seen before but it's, it's so all over the place that I'm a bit I'm not yeah. quite sure how to approach this where I'm a little bit more, more sure about the other movies that we're talking about so what did you think of Murder by Decree? Oh, pretty much the same as you. I think if the writer had learned a little bit of brevity and had not tried to create these arbitrary comic moments that got in the way of Plummer trying to create a character because <laughs> they were inconsistent, they didn't fit. If the if the director had gotten out of the way of the actors, because I think sometimes the director was the problem. It seemed as though he wanted a very traditional Sherlock Holmes. And yet the Watson is anything but. So why would he let James Mason create that really interesting take on John Watson? And it is. It's fascinating. Why would he not allow Plummer to take off that stupid hat and let him be character instead of a costume? This is one of the greatest actors who's ever worked, and you're making him play a costume instead of a character. Well, I don't think he was necessarily viewed in theater circles, yes, but he was still struggling through a movie trying to make it in the movies at that point and shake off Von Trapp. But that ridiculously large pipe he has, too. It was like a cartoon. Oh, and, and he couldn't keep it lit. <laughs> that, that's, that is not the actor's problem. The actor has more than enough to worry about. Yeah. That is the problem of some people working with props who were either overworked or lazy or just didn't know anything about pipes. I used to smoke a pipe. I know how much work it is mm -hmm. to get it packed just right. And if you do it just right, then Christopher Plummer could have picked it up, lit the match, and it would burn. There was a whole scene in which he gave up trying to light that stupid thing, and he just kept holding it and doing with it what you would do with a pipe, except it wasn't working. And it wasn't his fault. He was busy playing the character and doing the lines. Frustrated watching this movie because some of it was so very good. That scene with Genevieve Bougeau is one of the most powerful performances I've seen. It's incredible. And in that scene with her, Plummer does great stuff. In the scene with John Gielgud, that's when Plummer, that, that's when an interesting character comes out. And it's Sherlock Holmes who's not supremely certain of everything. But he is certain of this. And he plays that beautifully because he's working with a really good actor and not being told to play the costume. But the and writing is so such an overwrought scene, though. I mean, it's well, it, it is. Well, enough, but... The writing in the entire film is like that. It gets in the way a lot. When doesn't it? When they have some scenes in which dialogue would be pointless anyway, then it's a little stronger. But even there, sometimes the, the transitions are abrupt. 
apt and jarring. I think this film could have been much, much better if it had been written by a better writer or maybe just edited better. And if it had been directed by somebody else. The, the writing and the direction. I mean, I, I, I like, I don't know, it's, it's uneven, but I, I kind of like those slasher types of scenes, even though I think there's a little bit too much fog and too much <laughs> I think that was in his wheelhouse, but there are other parts that were not as well done. I, I agree with you, except in the case of one of them. The very first murder that happens on screen yeah. was not credibly portrayed at all. It's like the, this was the first try and they said, good enough, and they moved on. So I yeah. want some some other factors that were negatively affecting this film that might have made the director look bad. I mean, if you have producers who keep saying you're already over budget, no more, you got to get it and be done with it. Things like that. I don't know. This is probably one of three, like this isn't as well known, but Black Christmas is well known. He had this in the middle. His other kind of prominent film in his filmography is A Christmas Story. <laughs> bizarre i mean i i don't know like again just horror movies and then that i think it's it hasn't been great stuff really since that movie that was in the 80s so i mean i, I appreciate what he, he's trying to do here but yeah i i think sherlock holmes and jack the ripper have had better tv and film adaptations than this one but yeah. they managed to get a heck of a good cast for it there's one more i want to mention yeah. another canadian chris wiggins plays the doctor in that institution who has been responsible Responsible for the destruction of the mind of the character played by Javier Bujo. And it's pretty good. His face is extremely recognizable to people like me and your parents, Jason, because Chris Wiggins starred in or and or had major appearances in every television series in the 70s and 80s. Oh, okay. Uh, some some American at every Canadian show on television. Yeah. Didn't make any impression on me, really. I guess he, uh, the performance itself, I don't think, you know, I, I was so focused on the other two. And I, I also, what I liked was, again, James Mason, even though he's barely in the scene when he's like finding some excuse to go off with the doctor. I thought that was that was handled really well. But the centerpiece is like those two wonderful actors going back and forth. And in the background are these poor women who have been institutionalized. And this is an, another movie where uh, the treatment of mentally ill people is is handled so poorly and... You just see the, the horrors and the history of that. Well, also the, the fact that they were made mentally ill by how they were treated. They didn't go in there because they were mentally ill. They no. went in there for many other reasons. Yes. In the case of Bougeot's character, politics. She got pregnant by pregnant by a, a, a prominent man she was having an affair with, and she was a lower class, and showed the corruption of of the British system. And that's what that really long scene is about where Holmes confronts feel good. And you know, that, that is a redeeming quality. That is a very positive thing to have done. It was necessary. It was important. It was controversial, especially to the social hierarchy, the status quo, but it was necessary. It's too bad that so often in the film, other things became more important to the people making the film. Yeah. If that had stayed a, a central focus, well, lots of ifs. I think it's clear that this is the least favorite of both of us. Well, I know we have a few other movies to talk about here, but I feel like it should have worked and you let the actors act if you have this this cast. The mystery, I don't know if you have any theories on, on what was going on with Donald Sutherland in this performance. Did you have a similar reaction or is it just me finding the entire the character? I mean... It, 
there are convoluted things like that in these Sherlock Holmes stories where it goes to talk to a psychic or, or whatever. But the way that Sutherland played it, it just felt like the wrong choice. And I like Donald Sutherland a lot. He's, I think he's a really, really good actor. So I, I'm just not quite sure what was happening. There. Yeah, it's a very different role for him. And it's not one you expect. You know, he, he's not one that you would expect to have been cast in that role, is what I mean. And it doesn't work. Why? I don't know. Do you laugh at it the way I did? Like, I. No, but. No. You just thought it was bad. It, it, yeah. Well, Sutherland has... I've seen him do two things that are bad now. This is one of them. And the other was when he played Casanova in Horrific Waste of Time. Yeah, Fellini film you're, you aren't a fan of. I've never seen it. So. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, the it, Donald Sutherland did something like Clute. Yeah, he's... You know, uh, it's just... There's no comparison. No, I mean... Or, or even MASH, which we reviewed before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, re I really like Donald Sutherland and always will, but this was not... Favorite. This might have, might even be my least favorite of his his work. So I'm glad he chose something different, stretched himself. But I, I felt like I was laughing at somebody who was in pain, and I don't like that, you know, because it's such an earnest performance of this poor pain medium. And but it just looked ridiculous, and that might not totally be Sutherland's fault. So you know how he was made yeah. up the costume. I think is it was part of it. Yeah, Pretty right. negative about uh, Murder by Decree. I mean, I think you could do worse. There is much worse out there as far as yeah. uh, detective thrillers i mean there are some pretty stupid ones there are some individual scenes which are well worth your time and watching plumber and james mason like they, they were just wonderful together going through this mystery adventure it's just they were jumping from genre to genre from scene to scene and that was maybe they they handled it well but that was on other people i don't think it was we can yeah. We blame the the actors for this one. You know, if nothing else, the film is worth watching just to see Bougeot in that in that one scene. Yeah, you could probably w watch that scene on YouTube, and then you have seen that scene. You could, if you want to look at the scene with Gielgud on its own after not after watching several hours of the the film, then maybe you have the energy to watch that scene to see some great actors act off each other with not the greatest of material. She's one of the best investigators I have. But? She's different. Uh, in what way? In every way. Something wrong with the report? Anything you chose not to disclose. He's clean, in my opinion. He's honest. Her credibility isn't dead yet. Mine is. He's had a long-standing sexual relationship with his co-editor of the magazine. Sometimes he pleasures her. Not often enough, in my opinion. No, you're right not to include that. I need your help. You come stay on the island. A way of avoiding all those people you might want to avoid right now. You will be investigating thieves, misers, bullies, the most detestable collection of people that you will ever meet. My family. This is Harriet. Someone in the family murdered Harriet. And for the past 40 years has been trying to drive me insane. Those are from her, and the rest from her killer. You failed to adapt to four foster homes. Were arrested twice for intoxication, twice for assault. How many partners have you had in the last month? And how many of those were men? I should have control of my money. And you will, once you learn to be sociable. Why don't we start with me? You know what to do. 
Why can't find something you've been unable to find in 40 years? You don't know that. You have a very keen investigative mind. You were here that day. A terrible day. Searching, not finding. I never found a body. Was it spontaneous? Was it calculated? Did she know something? Someone wish she didn't. The last time I reported on something without being absolutely sure, I lost my life savings. I need a research assistant. I know an excellent one. She did the background check on you. The what? You don't think we could hire just anyone for something like this? It's Mikhail Blomqvist. May I come in? Here's something I've noticed on the show has happened to me a few times where if there's a book, and so I haven't always read the source material for some movies, but if there is a book that I have read and I have loved, and then I go and I review the movie version for this podcast, I sometimes find myself ripping apart the movie because I love the book so much. I, I certainly, I think that was a fault in my review of John Carpenter's Christine. And the girl with the dragon tattoo had Swedish language films for the trilogy of books by Stieg Larsson. Very dark but memorable uh, books about Lisbeth Sander and, you know, three really great mysteries that kind of resolve themselves in a, this epic story over the three books. And I read the first one and I was addicted. I had to read, I, I don't I don't know, it seemed very quick that I went through those three books. I haven't read the books that were after Stieg Larsson's death and I don't know I know there's been a film version of one of them but I, I watched the Swedish film and they were very true to the book and very well done. And then I saw there was an American version coming out and I thought it was very soon after. And I thought, oh no, Hollywood got their hands on this. Like, is this going to be necessary? And I think I even had that kind of feeling hearing that the great David Fincher, the director of Seven and Zodiac and Fight Club was directing this. And I think I went to the movie, I saw it in theaters and I, I was probably coming in, I, I don't think my arms were fully crossed, but they were uh, waiting to cross because I was like, they're, they're going to dumb it down. They're going to pull the punches in it. And the thing I noticed right away is they cut a lot out of the book. It's a long movie. And mind you, the, the, the Swedish film versions are in kind of the three hour range. They move super fast through what I always thought was very important stuff from the novel. So I was like, oh, what are they doing? Oh, this is going to be a watered down version. And I had gotten used to Naomi Rapace playing uh, Elizabeth Sander in the Swedish films. And so Runa Mara is, has this different take on, on Elizabeth. And I wasn't quite sure how comfortable I was with it. I, I liked the casting of Daniel Craig as this uh, you know, disgraced re reporter and as their stories play out. But I was just like, Fincher's whipping through this story. And then then there's this point where I realize, no, no, he's going for it and they are going for it. And when it gets to a revenge torture scene towards the end of the first act, I'm like, okay, this is a true Girl with the Dragon Tattoo film. And I, I've watched this three times now and each time I watch it, I like it more and more and more. And so among this group of six, while I, I do have some criticisms for it, I, as I do for all all six of the movies. I saved it till the end and I really, really enjoys a weird word for a movie like this because it's so dark, but I don't know. I, I relaxed in it and I, I just know that with David Fincher, I'm in really good hands. And now that I've watched it a few times, Rooney 
Mara's performance has kind of stuck with me. I, 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 I like it a lot more, particularly since I've seen some other stuff that she's done. I realize how different she is in other roles than she is in this movie and how committed she was to this, this role. To the point where she got various parts of her body pierced. Uh, so it was authentic and she got rid of her hair. David Fincher's a method director and he demands a lot of his, his actors and he put her through the paces. She'd worked with him previously on a, a short role in The Social Network and she got an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress for this. As I, the more I watch it, the more I understand why that is. So I can probably accept that there are two different interpretations of this character out there. I know Claire Foy, I haven't seen, they did the Spider's Web film. She, yeah, I, I, I don't know how good she is in that. She's a good actor. I, I find it strange, though. I don't think this is like a James Bond where you can switch people every series or every few times. But they, they seem to try to do that with, with these movies. But I really appreciate how deep she went into the character when I kind of found that out. And she does all of the stuff that she is required to do just as, just like in the Swedish film. It's a brave performance. And I really like Daniel Craig. I mean, it was something different than James Bond. And a really good cast. And then Christopher Plummer has this nice role. And he said, key to the beginning of the film, his character does have a medical incident and then disappears for great chunks, of the, just like in the book. But he, he starts the film. It kind of finishes it. Too. It is a very effective crime thriller. The script itself by Stephen Zalian, who's a very good director, wrote Schindler, or writer. He's also a director, too. He didn't direct it, but a good writer. Schindler's List, Civil Action, The Irishman. He wrote all of those and many more over the years. I think the only criticism I have of the screenplay is that he, he rushes through the beginning, but what happens in the second and third act is very effective. Yeah. And the last scene of this movie is heartbreaking, kind of knowing kind of what happens next. There's just a brilliance. It's a combination of Fincher's direction, Mara's acting, and what Zalian does. He's good at having a, a final punch at the end of a movie, as I've talked about with The Irishman before. It's just a top-notch production, the whole thing. But it is so dark if you if you don't like the books and you know there's a very vicious rape scene in this a very vicious revenge on the rape scene and then some other very very disturbing sequences towards the end of the movie and the whole everything that's going on so i can't recommend it to everybody but i think i told you before that the darker movies that we're talking about seem to work better for me even though it wasn't the most uplifting six <laughs> movies to watch in a short period of time but no. Girl the Dragon Debt Tattoo, it's a big recommendation for me. But I would also encourage people to read the books first and also check out the Swedish films, which I will I own and will one day review on the show as well. Yeah. So what, what were your thoughts? Had you seen this one before? Yes, I have. And I've seen the Swedish one, though not the other one that you mentioned that you haven't seen. I haven't seen that one either. There are some subtle things about the Swedish one that I like better. But to just to point to them and say it's this or it's that is very difficult. I think maybe the one thing that I like better about the Swedish one in general is just that more of them are Swedes. And so maybe it had a little more of a, an authentic feel from that perspective. There is one performance in the Swedish film that I think is stronger. And I don't mean this as a criticism of the actor who plays that despicable parole officer. Uh -huh. uh, but I think the actor, the Swedish actor who played that role in the Swedish film is, is even more hateable. Oh, yes. Even more. Yeah. And and so that the, the whole series 
of scenes that he is in were a little bit more effective. On the other hand, there's one actor in this version who I think is noticeably stronger and much more present and, and significant feeling because of his performance. And that's the performance of Christopher Plummer. He is better as that old man. Yeah, as the older... And, and the very capable actor in the other... Yeah. I mean, he's not... You know he's not Swedish and we've seen him a million things, but, you know, he's doing his best dialect and, again, he's he's just such a wonderful actor. It's obvious casting, but sometimes obvious is the right way to go. It, it was... Absolutely, because he always makes it his own and yeah. he always makes it interesting yeah. and he always makes <laughs> character unique and he always makes it about the character, not about himself, and the story, not about himself. And, well, partly this is the film, too. They do delve a little more into the nature of his character and the reason why he's doing this. And, you know, that moment when he is reunited with this family member who he thought, or how many years now, he has thought that she was dead. There's He reached down really deep. That is such a convincing cry that he just bursts into. Yeah, that's a good scene. Often, often when an actor bursts into tears, mm. it's not believable. But that one was. And, and maybe because it starts with, his body starts to shake about the midsection. He's sitting in a wheelchair at the time, so it can't yeah. come from his feet. But it seems to come right from his, yeah. you know, and he's convulsing. And then he bursts into tears. David Fincher's not known for yeah. sentimental scenes. But, it, it is earned in, in this film. But, yeah. but maybe, maybe partly because all that happens is he wheels his wheelchair out into the hallway. He looks up, he looks at her, and then he suddenly realizes who she is. Yeah. And then he just breaks down. I'll tell you what I'm missing, and this is this is going to be a weird way of explaining this. I, and it's considered sacrilege in the movie nerd world, but I am very critical at points of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy because I'm a fan of those books, and particularly in Fellowship of the Ring and The Hobbits, and I never think that they really spend enough time on the the character of the Hobbits, who are very cheerful people who sing and like to drink and eat and all of this, and none of that appears in Peter Jackson's version of those movies. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, one of the pieces that I'm missing from the beginning is Elizabeth's relationship with her, her war. We just get, we go straight in this film version into he ends up having a stroke, and and can no longer care for her and has kind of just left her alone and treated her as as who she is and then this this leads to this horrible person having control over her money and and her body and her life that's a really important relationship at the beginning that says a lot about Elizabeth which we don't get in Fincher's film and I, I realize like he he can't go for a three hour three and a half hour film with this this crime thriller. I mean, he, he pushed three hours with Zodiac. Some people criticize that. Other people think it's a, uh, a masterpiece and maybe his best film. And I think this was about two and a half hours as it was. But I, I was just missing that piece and it almost sounded like, you know, the Lord of the Rings they were three hour movies each and, and I'm asking for another 20 minutes, a half an hour to be put in there. But I, I missed that piece and that was part of the rushed feeling I got and where I, yeah. it took me a while to warm up the first time to Rooney Mars performance because we were just seeing the exterior of it and it isn't really until she's been raped but we also see how intelligent she is with how she handles that secretly filming this awful guy but to me the movie got going when she gets the revenge on him it's a tough scene to watch and I was worried that they were going to water it down they don't and I that's that's where I was like oh she is really good in this in this movie and then how that relates relationship starts off like a working relationship with Daniel Craig which maybe it doesn't feel as like it leads into 
that kind of sexual relationship. Maybe that felt a little bit forced in this version. It didn't bother me before. It didn't bother me in the book or the Swedish film. But here it sort of happens. But yet somehow I actually think that their relationship, somehow these two actors got to a deeper place with it, as unusual as it is, than the Swedish actors did. The, the great regret to me is that things did not work out. They were supposed to, this team of people were supposed to make the trilogy. There were script problems. Some people wanted to take the story in a different direction than the novels did, and Fincher disagreed. I think somebody in there mentioned this idea that Daniel Craig was asking for too much money after Skyfall was such a big success that they weren't willing to pay him more money to play the role. All these things fell apart, but they, they planned it, and Runa Mara like basically changed her body completely and stopped eating and all of these method things to get ready to play this role for three films. And she only got to do it for one. She got the Oscar nomination, which led to a bunch of other work, which is fine. But I would have loved to see this group do their take, which initially I, I wasn't that excited about this. And I kept waiting for years. When is the next one coming out? And it never did. And apparently it, it died. And they decided to go with that, the newer book and recast everybody and not have Fincher involved, which, I mean, I don't think that that film got nearly the intention that, that this film did, which is kind of a shame. Criticism, and maybe it's fair, maybe it's not, but it, again, American-produced thrillers or horror movies do this all the time, where you see a prominent character actor, and you are going to know who the villain is. <laughs> I've read the book, and I know it, but Stellan Skarsgård is a very good actor, but he plays a lot of villains, and he's, he's always given something to do in a movie ever since... Yeah, like he was very well known before Goodwill Hunting, but ever since Goodwill Hunting, when he started to do more English language films, and he fits really well. It is good casting, and he does have some scary moments. But when I first saw it, the second I was like, okay, that was a little bit too on the nose. That casting, I would have preferred to have somebody more obscure, or maybe find somebody who is not known as being that. So for those who hadn't read the book or seen saw the other film version, they could. Be be fooled but yeah. this guy seems to be helping out like kind of encouraging christopher Plummer's journey to find this girl and and he seems to be helping out daniel craig but really uh the second you see him you know another strange one and i guess maybe this relationship led to her great role on house of cards but robin wright strange casting like she's kind of there as this kind of the editor of the paper that michael boom bloomquist daniel craig was no longer able to uh write for and and a married woman who he sometimes sleeps with, has this affair with. It's kind of like his girlfriend, but everybody, explained in the book, everybody's aware of each other. And she's a wonderful actor. She's just not given a, a whole lot to do. No, uh, the character, that character is given more in uh, in the Swedish version. Swedish version and the books. Yeah. Maybe if there had been other movies, then there would have been more for her to do. They were maybe casting it, prepping for that. But it just kind of sits there, which is, again, too bad because I've sung her praise. Is she gave my favorite performance in Forrest Gump years ago, and I think she yeah. she kept House of Cards going right to the end despite all of their controversies with Kevin Spacey. My criticisms of it are kind of picky and feeble. This is this is a great crime thriller. Was there anything else you kind of wanted to say about it? I feel like again I was dominating this review. But I don't 
think so. I mean, yeah, I agree with you with about an awful lot of that. I do think the Swedish one is a little bit better, but I think that's just the effect. As you said, it was so predictable who the bad guy was going to be. One of the advantages of the Swedish version is that that wasn't the case, and that might they might have cast it the same way. But being less familiar with Swedish cinema, we might not have known that actor always plays the villain. So uh, that was a more yeah. Effective. If you're in Sweden, maybe maybe that that's the story. This guy always plays the villain, and it wouldn't have been a surprise to those audiences. But yeah, maybe not. We didn't really know Naomi Rapace. I didn't, and she's been in some stuff. I think she's she's actually British or something. I, I've seen her in stuff since then, but I I didn't even know her when the film came out. Yeah, I mean her Swedish is very good in the Swedish films, but then she ended up in Ridley Scott's Prometheus, which was a prequel to Alien, uh, a few years after that. So, but yeah, no, I, it's good cast, solid cast. But I yeah, I, at the end somehow my arms were kind of prepared to be crossed and were almost crossed in the first act. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I first saw it, then I started to relax and by the end i was really touched by the movie as extremely violent and dark and bleak as it is it's something special that only a master filmmaker like david fincher could balance all of that and yeah i, I just and, and that was a tough job because the swedish one was very well received and yeah. was very well made and so his work was cut out for him not to be a disappointment or not yeah. to produce a disappointment but he had his own vision for it which was different than and he was very much aware of of the Swedish version, but there were other things he wanted to do with yep. it. Did a fairly faithful job. As a movie fan, I, I want my cake and I want to eat it too, right? <laughs> and so I was missing a few things from the book. But maybe if I hadn't read the book and I just watched this and I hadn't watched the Swedish film, I'd be like, holy cow, this is one of the greatest movies of all time. Because it does have such suspense and such tension and is very clever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to get uh, quite a few points from me. I have to correct you on one thing. As a movie goer, it isn't your cake that you want. It's your pop my popcorn. popcorn. I also want to eat it too with the extra butter layered. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the earth. License, no prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was just into the eyeballs. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I am simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. I don't think when I saw 12 Monkeys, I don't know if it was 1995 or if it was like the early, early weeks of 1996 when it came out and and certainly there was a lot of Oscar buzz around Brad Pitt but I was fascinated to see everybody I was a fan of the Fisher King so I wanted to see uh, Terry Gilliam's follow-up but if I had been asked to do a, a synopsis of the story even today I'm probably going to be struggling with it <laughs> but essentially Bruce Willis and it's nice to see uh, Bruce Willis who's buying in and not phoning it in in this movie but Bruce Willis is a prisoner in the future and but he's proven himself to be very good at finding remnants of the earth when it was inhabitable uh, before this apocalypse happened 
uh, this massive pandemic. So it was kind of weird, again, watching this movie, what we've been going through with COVID-19. And heads of government or the prison or whatever, and only in Terry Gilliam's world would you see these crazy folks that keep reappearing in these odd scenes and through television screens, but they're there. It's really, really unique. They decide to send Bruce Willis back to the 1990s, and it's 1997 where everything kind of went wrong, which would have been two years in the future from when this movie was released. And his mission is to go back to uh, try to find out about this 12 monkeys group that caused this pandemic to happen. And it's information, so he goes back to report it so that they can create some sort of a vaccine so that later somebody else can go back in time to immunize all humans so that humanity can have control over the world again and it not be run by animals. They're not asking Bruce Willis to go do all this. He just he just has to go. And unfortunately, though, he's he a, part, yeah. he's initially by mistake sent back in time to I believe 1991, so a few years early, and he ends up being put into a mental institution where he encounters a psychiatrist played by a wonderful underrated actor who I haven't seen in a whole lot since the 90s, Madeline Stowe, who is. A psychiatrist who isn't removed. There's a lot of stuff with psychiatrists and mental health in this episode, I've noticed. But but she she wants to actually like get to know her patient and actually listen to him as opposed to just assume he's a crazy person and lock him away. Yeah. Also, in this mental institution, Bruce Willis's character comes across uh, Jeffrey Goins, who claims to be the son of a very rich and powerful man in as good an introduction as any character I've ever seen in the history of film, played by Brad Pitt in his first Oscar nomination. And as it turns out, James Cole, Bruce Willis, James has encountered uh, the person who would be the leader of the 12 Monkeys group in 1997. Through a bizarre set of circumstances, Bruce Willis goes back to his time, and then he goes back and he goes to the proper time he was initially sent, sent for, and some things have progressed since then. He ends up in a situation where he has to, by force, take kind of kidnap his psychiatrist, and he's trying to find a way to infiltrate the 12 Monkeys led by Brad Pitt. But behind this kind of dangerous experiment that's that's being done is Brad Pitt's father and that is the role of course that Christopher Plummer plays in this movie but I'm not sure I want to say much more because there's a wonderful twist as far as the whole Brad Pitt, Pitt character and what's happening there and what's happening with Christopher Plummer but I remember thinking this and I I think I still sort of agree that came back to my Oscar boring Oscar nonsense that was a very competitive year for Best Supporting Actor. Brad Pitt won the Golden Globe for this role. And he, you know, was a couple of years into being becoming a big star. This was the same year that Seven came out. So he had a very good year. He was coming off of Legends of the Fall, which is uh, whatever, but it was a popular movie. Yeah. He became a genuine movie star. But this was a very strange role for a movie star in the 90s, uh, an image-conscious and he's not really an image conscious guy. And this and Seven were both very, very dark roles for him. So he won that, that Globe Award. I kind of thought Ed Harris, getting back to Apollo 13, should have won the Oscar. 
but they also had the usual suspects. And uh, get back to Kevin Spacey winning an award again. Kevin Spacey won Best Supporting Actor for the Usual Suspects in another twist type of a movie there. So Pitt ended up losing. I remember when I saw the film as a teenager, and so put that in mind that I equated over-the-top flashy performances as being always good. Those early scenes with Pitt, I was like, this guy's going to easily win the Academy Award. But when we get into the second and third act, when we're in the 1997 sequence, it's kind of a different approach and things have happened with that character. And I didn't get the energy and the excitement as much. It almost fizzled off a little bit for me. That's where, and I, I said, he's not going to win the award now. Like it's kind of the first half he would win, second half he wouldn't. Watching it now, I think, you know, there's there could be an argument that he could have won, but there's an argument that several people in that category that year could have won Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. So it was a, a tough yeah. competition, but Pitt is really, really good. But Willis is good too. He anchors the film well. And I, I also I really love his better performances. And I really love Madeline Stowe. Uh, Catherine Rayleigh is, is, and she's written books and she's the psychiatrist, but this is this mystery about her patient somehow escaping this locked room in this maximum security mental institution. And then he reappears years later and the news has, has all this stuff about him kidnapping her. Of course, they develop a romance. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's pretty standard for these types of films. So I can maybe, yeah. I, it doesn't bother me too much, but I can, maybe it's just, it's done so much that I can have kind of mixed feelings about it. There was also, this is, I just mentioned in a Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, how casting can sometimes give away a, a surprise or who's a villain. There's a very good character actor who shows up in an early scene and then has this a few scenes with Christopher Plummer. And if you don't haven't seen him in some other stuff, then you're just he's just kind of there. But he's actually a significant character. But if you have seen as many movies with him in it as I have and the types of roles he plays, you're kind of going, okay, there's something off about this guy and there's going to be a payoff later on. So that might ruin some of the surprises that happened in the third act for you. But I had such a good time with it. And I don't know if I've become more warped in my 40s. The <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, you have. I don't I know. I have the plot made a way more sense to me. It, I, I used to think it was the, the biggest mystery. I've seen some other movies which are way more mysterious and indecipherable sense. But 12 Monkeys, I mean, for movie nerds and those who love a, a very original film, you need to check it out. And a young, hungry Brad Pitt, given his all. I mean, this announced that he's not just a movie star, but he is one of our most important actors. We've talked about this before. Yes, we have. He's he's the he's one of the best there is. And it took him until 2019 to actually win his Oscar. So it was basically 24 years after his first nomination for 12 Monkeys that he eventually won in the same category. I think, you know, the movie star stuff and the good looks, and I don't know what, that probably got in the Academy's way a little bit more than like an organization. I know the Globes are being kind of controversial right now, but they're not afraid to award a really good performance if it's a good looking movie star or if it's somebody who's had a failed career for the last 10 years comeback role i can see reasons to it's a true supporting performance he doesn't have a ton of screen time but he's memorable in that in the scenes that he has and his character is crucial and and he makes sure that his performance reflects that 
I very, very much like this movie. I find it difficult to find anything to criticize about it. Though, yes, it is a bit of the Gilliam formula that there'll be that romantic interest that develops. Mm -hmm. I was I was sometimes a little bit reminded of a very a, a relatively early Gilliam film, which is still arguably my favorite, Brazil. There was a lot of Brazil in this one. Yeah, it, but of course, the problem between 1995 and when Brazil was made is that things were still screwed up, nothing got fixed, and it's still <laughs> true today. Mm -hmm. I thought one of one of the strengths for me in the film is that after all of this buildup, late in, in the film, Willis's character finds out that it wasn't the 12 monkeys after all. They, they didn't have anything to do with it. I was trying to skirt around that, that plot twist, but I, I guess it is several years old. I think lots of people know of this and have seen the movie, and some people might not have because in a while but yeah I, that is a very clever there are surprises and earned surprises right up until the last moments of the film i mean there really are like some things that make a lot of sense bruce willis's character he keeps having this reoccurring dream uh but there's some things in there which are false memories thrown yeah. in there. so it's not a perfect thing but when, when you see it all happen in the reality of the film towards the end that is that is very clever very well thought out and david webb peoples david webb peoples also wrote uh, the screenplay for unforgiven and janet peoples would assume his wife they did the adaptation it was it was based on an earlier french film the jeté and it, it's just so clever from beginning to end it is one of terry gilliam's best films you know if i if i was to pick between the two we're talking about i would choose this one Me too. as much as i appreciate what he was doing i mean there's bells and whistles in here but he's not using computer tricks in fact he no. he does that, that wonderful his kind of dystopian future looks like it was cobbled together with like 1980s tv screens and all this very metallic and very interesting to look at and he did it in brazil as well i i really really appreciate that kind of thing more than relying on the blue screen or green screen and the computers to do all the work for you so i that, that's why I, I would give this a lot more points he also uses the camera really well. Particularly, I, I noticed this particularly early in the film, but things like this are happening throughout. Of course, Willis's character is going back in time and is learning about, he's experiencing a lot of this stuff for the first time. How can you use a camera to help us feel the same way? Even though what we're seeing is, for example, a modern day airport, we're, we're all familiar with that. But when the camera is tilted a little, and when the camera angle is being shot from down low close to the floor, which is so appropriate too, because Willis's character was a little boy then, and that's where he's seeing it from. He's just a little bit above the floor, you know? Little things like that become big things on the whole when you get into the picture a little more and realize just what Gilliam is trying to get us to see. So that what he does with the camera becomes really important. And he's such a Shot that way, you know, from from down low, it's like we're mice on the floor watching what happens sometimes, and yeah, and of course sometimes it's up high. It's it's never quite where you expect it to yeah. be, and it's often slightly askew. And of yeah. course, Willis's understanding of the world is is askew mm -hmm. because he's been told this is what happened. 
now go back into the past and prove it and he's finding things aren't quite matching what he was told no. it's understandable but I, I like because there's i mean we talked about another movie where there were tonal shifts all over the place and it didn't make sense there are tonal shifts and there's some absurdist humor but it doesn't ruin the whole thing like it to me it's a very serious approach and focused approach to the movie it doesn't completely compromise but the colorful characters that we see that, that homeless person who is that voice that he hears when he's in solitary but oh man there's a ton of clever stuff too it's like i could be going on for hours about it in the script these little elements are introduced and then reintroduced later in the film just so well balanced so i i think i like it even more than when i first saw it as a teenager who was wowed by all the visual tricks and at that time and the the big performance by pitt it is a little bit of a masterpiece actually and I'm, i i was happy that we were able to revisit it a knock in the christopher Plummer themed show is is he's not in the movie a whole lot, um, no. unfortunately, but he's good in the scenes that he's in. Yeah, scientist with an accent and an attitude. He's got this arrogance. He doesn't listen to his son's psychiatrist, which causes him some problems, and he's kind of a removed father in some ways, and he's, you kind of see that tension, but yet he doesn't have much actual or, or real screen time with Pitt. That relationship make, makes a lot of sense, and other things are being ignored while that is going on, which is, which is really well handled yeah I, a lot of really good movies that we're talking about in this one but for those who haven't checked out 12 monkeys you will not regret it so what do you know about me well you used to run one of the largest industrial firms in the country used to that's correct but i, I didn't mean the rest no, no. my grandfather forged the tracks that the 430 train would take you home we stitched this country together. We made the steel, milled the lumber that built modern Sweden. And what do you think our most profitable product now is? Fertilizer. <laughs> oh, I'm not obsessed by the declining health of the company, but I am with the settling of accounts. Tom, thank you for coming back, and I'm sure we'll see you here for a seventh time. We already have a little bit of an idea of what the next one's going to be that uh, Off Mike will talk about. I'm interested in your points distribution here and uh, how much I think we were disagreeing on a whole lot of stuff. Maybe a little bit on Ron Howard. That's the only point where you were kind of yeah. playing defense. Uh, small potatoes. How many points would you give the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus? Well, before I start, I want to say there isn't a massive amount of difference in the points I've given, but then that's not surprising when, you know, I really like four of these movies and the other two are pretty good too. So but still, yeah. Dr. Parnassus, I've ended up with 10. A Beautiful Mind, eight. Beautiful Mind, Lost Claybone. 12 for Dolores. Murder by Decree. Only six there. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. 10 again. And 12 Monkeys. 14. Yeah, we are really, this may be the closest in points I've ever been with a guest. I mean, movie per movie. Uh, you know, there's one where we have the exact same and other ones like we are very, very close. We're within two in each. Uh, yeah. I only gave eight points to the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I uh, I appreciate it, but I, I don't think it's Terry Gilliam's best, but I, I do admire some of the performances. It was just up against some tough films. As critical as I was of A Beautiful Mind, I gave you I gave more points than you did. I, I gave 
10 points to it. I think it is, most years, it would have been a worthy Best Picture winner for me. And, I mean, Crows, the acting was was amazing, and I was blown away when I first saw it. But that was a year that had Mulholland Drive and In the Bedroom and Gosford Park and, like, these these really, really interesting films uh, that were not kind of coloring within the formulaic Hollywood lines. But I have to admire most of A Beautiful Mind. Dolores Claiborne, that's where we both gave it 12. Exact same number of points. We agreed about everything, too, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything else. So. Murder by Decree, I gave it a bit less. I gave five points. You gave it six. So uh, not much better. I Again, I found it uneven. I, I, I feel like, though, compared to some of the movies that I really had like personal problems with reviewing recently, if it had been with those movies, it would have been the number one. It's not a bad movie. It's just not as good as the other ones we're talking about. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I gave 12 points to. I gave more points than, than you did. That one's really grown on me. I am a David Fincher fan, and I liked it a lot. But my favorite of these was 12 Monkeys, and I gave 13. So just a, one more than Dolores Claiborne and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. By three, I was really, really strong on. Two, I was in the middle on, but still really admired. And then one that's I want to like more than I actually like it. What that does, when we break down the points, and the points are kind of, again, interesting this time. Not a surprise, really, but the movie that had the most points was 12 Monkeys. Second was Dolores Claiborne, followed by, in third, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. There was a tie for fourth for the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and A Beautiful Mind. Clearly, with only 11 points, Murder by Decree was the lowest. Now, here's the trick. Murder by Decree was one of the ones that, to fill out the show that we did that I watched on a streaming service. I don't own a physical copy of it, so I can't get rid of it from my collection, so we might have to get a little bit creative about what I should do to deal with the fact that it was the lowest movie in, in uh, the show. Wow. Well, I could be cruel and say pick some other Sherlock Holmes story, but that wouldn't be fair either. Hmm. Which streaming service? I watched it on... It was on Super Channel. <laughs> Cancel your subscription to Super Channel? No, that's that's too cruel. I could do that. <laughs> this is a really difficult question to answer now. What to do? Well, okay, I just thought of something. I told you about Chris Wiggins, who was in this film, and that he was a very recognizable TV star in the, in the day. I think what you should do is show your parents a picture of Chris Wiggins, and whatever they remember first in terms of his many TV series, as long as the first memory is one that he was actually in because it can happen sometimes you say oh wasn't he in this well you find out no he was in that no. not in this the first thing they identify in their recollection with that face you have to watch an episode of that show that sounds pretty mild yeah. <laughs> pretty mild so I, it's I'm it won't be hard to find a copy of something he was in hopefully what they remember is maybe the most the show he was he was in there was one that was long running i think seven or eight seasons and he was one of the stars of it but he also had guest appearances on a zillion different shows as well. Whichever one they... So you you never know. You might be watching, uh, trying to find an episode of The Littlest Hobo. Who knows? Yeah, I used to watch that. It was a great series. Great show. Yeah. Everybody TV. knows the theme music. Thanks for being on again. Before I wrap up the show, just again, want to list off some other podcasts for you to listen to and uh, recommend uh, friends of the show. Film Feast, Rank and Review, and of course, A Lifetime of Hallmark. Please check out those podcasts. I, I highly recommend 
recommend them and they're great. I listen to them a lot on my way to work and back from work. I appreciate you listening to the show and supporting it and sharing it with the movie fans in your life. As uh, we record this, we're going into the official summer here, seeing some loosening of restrictions or we're, we're keeping positive. Please still be safe and take care of each other and keep supporting the movies and supporting the memory of the great Christopher Plummer. Thank yes. you.